Hello and welcome to Willosophy. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and uh, it's Sunday today, Sunday the 22nd of April when I'm recording this introduction. It is the final day of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. It's been a big couple of months for me, to be honest, putting this new show together and getting it out on the road and sort of the month in Melbourne, I still have some touring to go. I am in Perth in a couple of weeks and still have Canberra and Sydney and I'm going to do a bunch of other shows with this show. I, I love it so much and I'm loving it even more and more the more I do it, which is kind of a rare thing at the end of the festival. Normally, there's a point where you're looking towards the end, whereas with this show, it seems to grow and I seem to learn something new about it every night, which has been a an absolute bloody treat, to be honest, to be able to to do a show like that. And it's really, um, I've, I've obviously had a pretty busy time. We've been putting out this podcast and uh, I'm in Gruen pre-production. That just that starts in a week and a half. And, you know, I have this new radio job and whatever and uh, doing the festival on top of it, um, it, it. I thought that it might be, you know, too much. It might be a bit of a struggle. But luckily the show uh, and the enthusiasm that the audiences have had for the show has, uh, you know, managed to... To get me through, and I'm still feeling okay on the last day, which is not too bad. Hey, we have a couple of um, other comedy festival uh, recordings that I did. Uh, Kitty Flanagan, Jason Byrne, uh, that are still up my sleeve. And we have a couple of episodes we've recorded already with Hamish Blake and Jules Lund. Um, uh, we, we have a few up our sleeves still uh, at this stage, but... Um, we're going to go back to weekly now, and I thought it might be a good opportunity after the comedy festival ones to... Uh, maybe have a bit of a change of direction. So today's guest is um, somebody that I have a great deal of admiration for, Julian Burnside. Um, he is a man of many contradictions, but uh, somebody who is uh, incredibly uh, passionate about the causes and the people that he lobbies for. And um, I find all those things absolutely fascinating. And we talk about a bunch of them on this podcast today. Uh, look, it, certainly, again, it's one of those ones where, you know, uh, as people who've listened to my Jared McKenna episodes of this, understand that sometimes when uh, we get onto the topic of how Australia treats refugees, uh, I can get a little... Um, uh, it, it makes me angry in a way that I stop being rational a lot of the time. Uh, so... There'll be a bit of that in this podcast, but uh, otherwise you get to just listen to one of the smartest blokes going around explain why Australia could be doing better. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode with Julian Burnside. Uh, the podcast is now going to come out weekly on a Wednesday. Got a few up our sleeve so that I can uh, have a little break, but we'll start recording some new episodes to throw in with the, uh, the old episodes. And oh, I'll tell you what, a fun one that I did record the other day. Uh, I was talking to my next door neighbour, Phil, I've just moved into a new house and I'm moving cities as well. That's the other thing I've been trying to do while all this other stuff's been going on. And uh, um, so uh, I moved into a new house and I met my neighbour, he's 72, his name's Phil. And uh, you will get to meet my new neighbour as well because uh, Phil has an incredibly interesting story to tell and we just were chatting about it over the back fence and I was like, you should come in and do a podcast, Phil. So... Uh, there is some, uh, everyone from Hamish Blake to my next door neighbour, Phil, uh, and a lot of things in between are going to be coming up on the podcast. Uh, some really good ones coming up. Uh, sign up uh, to wherever you download your podcast. You know, just put it on subscribe and you'll get them when they come out. Uh, if you haven't listened to some of the, you know, sort of eight or so podcasts we've put out in the last uh, three or four weeks, then uh, go back through those. There's some real crackers in there, you know, particularly getting some wonderful feedback about the 
Denise Scott episode and the Sam Lane episode. And so I'm glad you're enjoying that. And if you are, you know, rate it on wherever you rate these things and spread the word. And I don't know, like, I don't really know how any of those things work. You know, you meant to ask people to do those things. And I mean, maybe they help people listen to the podcast. I don't know. Tell a friend if you think they like it. Um, all right. I was going to keep this intro short, so I reckon uh, that'll do. Big thank you to Mike Hell, uh, my American producer, who uh, weaves this all together. And, of course, to young Michael, podcast Mike, who has come on board and is the reason that you have heard so many episodes of this because he is one of the youngest, most enthusiastic, uh, uh, kind young gentlemen uh, that I've had the pleasure to meet. Uh, real pleasure to have him on board and uh, doing such great work working on this podcast already. So if you're enjoying having them coming out, that has a lot to do with Mike and the best way you can support this podcast is to come and see me do a stand-up show. That's how I am a living. Uh, come and see me do a show if I'm coming to nearby you. If you are not in a place where I come by and you can come and see me do a stand-up show, then the best thing to do is uh, join our Patreon page, patreon.com slash TOFOP, T-O-F-O-P. Um, that is for all the podcasts under our TOFOP brand. Uh, you may only listen to Philosophy, but uh, I have some nonsense podcasts with my friend Charlie, uh, one called TOFOP and one called Two Guys, One Cup. Uh, they're idiots being idiots about idiot things. So if that doesn't sound fun to you, then it probably won't be. Uh, they're fun for some people. And then uh, I have another podcast called FOFOP as well. So they're all there at TOFOP.com and... Uh, you can just join up on the Patreon page. Uh, give us a little bit of money. It means that we can pay James to uh, do the art. It means we can pay both the Michaels to do their bit of the job. Pretty much I do this bit where I just talk into the microphone and then I use my phone credit because I have no internet at my house to send it via the internet to a guy in America who puts it all... Anyway, look, you know what? It, it, it seems to work and that's the good news. All right. I uh, uh, hope you... Fuck, I've really run out of steam towards the end of this intro. All right. I thought it was going well. I was like, final day of the comedy festival. I'm doing fine. Now I'm just rambling. I'm so sorry. Here's some intelligent conversation with Julian Burnside. He's a young, enthusiastic radio guy who was recommended to me by someone who I trust very much. Yeah. And he said, this is your guy. Mm. And he has been far and beyond that with his enthusiasm. In fact, the fact that this podcast is happening today is because, you know, of his... He's thrown himself back into launching it mm. and getting it going again in a way that even I didn't have the, you know, time or, mm. you know probably even inclination to do it with the sort of well, vigour he has, which is nice. You seem to be pretty busy with what was growing and with the comedy festival and stuff like that. Yeah, well, this period of time in particular, because I'm in the middle of, I have a radio show yep. that I do in the mornings. I'm in the middle of moving. Oh, which? Um... On Triple M. Okay. And, uh, and then I do, um, and then I, yeah, I've been doing the festivals, touring mm. around with this brand mm. new show, but we're in Gruen pre-production at the moment. We mm. start filming you know, a couple of weeks and, yeah. uh, and so it's, I, yes. So as, and I've been doing these in the meantime, which has yeah. been, but the truth of it is that I've had the opportunity to do them now. And yeah. the nature of this podcast was really started because I, I wanted the opportunity to have these conversations with people, mm. you know, like get a various group of people in and go, Hey, what do you reckon about the world? You know, what, yeah. what is it about? I, it's funny. I meant when I was invited to come along, I had it in mind that I'd look up Gruen and find out 
who or what Gruen was. <laughs> because it's one of those programs, one of the few programs on television I actively look for, and if I've got the time, I watch it. So who or what was Gruen? So uh, Gruen is named after, and actually, this is you'll, you'll love this, uh, because uh, you will have experienced some of the pedantry of the ABC audience at different <laughs> times. And uh, they can be... The, the, the reason that I have, you know, the life that I have is in a large part to do with the loyalty and support of the ABC audience for work that I've made over my mm. career. So I say this with the sort of love that you save for people that you can... Te- <laughs> teasing in a family Christmas sort of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I have one guy who writes in every week to tell me I'm pronouncing the name of the show incorrectly because it's actually Groon. Like one syllable. Yeah, yeah. Well, it it's be, from German. Yeah, it yep. shouldn't be Gruen the yep. way that I say it, the yep. host of the show. So now it's Gruen. In, <laughs> so. fact, in fact, it should be Grun. If he's, if he's being really fussy, right. it should be Grun. Well, I can't quite tell from it being written down. Uh, no, <laughs> well, say. it's a German word meaning green. That's all right. This is Michael. I was just Hi, telling Michael. you about. Hey, just Hi. take it up there, mate. We don't need um, it for this Julian. now anyway. Oh, this is Julian. He's you, just been singing your praises. I don't know if he does it to you direct, but <laughs> well, I was I was recording for sound level, so you could actually hear like oh, cool. you can hear a little yeah you can hear what people are saying about you behind your back yeah. as long as they're yeah. recording at the same time. Uh, so we hadn't started; we were just having a chat. So anyway, who or what was Gruen? Oh yeah, so Gruen, Gruen is uh, named after Victor Gruen, who uh, designed the world's first shopping mall. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, shopping malls are designed to be intentionally confusing. Mm. Uh, it's to trigger a psychological part of your brain where you go from a thinking consumer into into a, side, a different zone where you can be manipulated more easily yeah. by the sights and smells. Yeah. And, you know, the amygdala takes over and you just do exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> and so they can actually recognize it. And so your breathing slows and your brain slows a little and you go into kind of an unconscious shopping state. You don't realize it, but it's mm. like... When you go out to buy, um, you know, dog food and toilet paper and you come home with a flat screen TV, <laughs> that is because, you know, the, the yes. Gruen, uh, well, the Gruen transfer is what they call the psychological yeah. phenomenon. And why did why was the name of the program changed from Gruen transfer to Gruen? Well, so originally we were a show, we thought we were just about, we, 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 it was conceived as being a show about advertising, a show mm. about the advertising industry. But because it's an original concept, and because it's one of those things where we were making it up as we went along, because we didn't know mm. what it was going to be. When Andrew Denton and John Casimer um, pitched it to me, yeah. we went to lunch and they said, we want to make a show that gives people the tools to understand advertising in the way that uh, Frontline gave people the tools to understand current affairs shows. That was his pitch. Yeah. And we didn't know if it was going to be a documentary series. We didn't know if it was going to be a team of comedians. We didn't know if it was going to be... And so we started meeting these people from the advertising industry mm. And we developed the show from the ground. We were going, and, they're fascinating. We and you conned Todd Sampson into it. <laughs> right. And we were like, well, we should put them on. We should put yeah. Russell on. We should put Todd on. We should put these people on TV. And then we discovered it wasn't really a show about advertising. Mm. We realized that it was a show about explaining the world through the prism of capitalism, which was the one thing that almost everything that's happening in our society can be t- defined through. And we had a unique prism. You mm. know, all these news shows were off going, well, here's the thing in the news. But we could go, mm. let's follow the money. The Pope visits America, let's follow the money. And we have advertising is the biggest way. I mean, at the moment, we're doing a lot of work on the Bank Royal Commission because obviously for us, we have a unique way of looking at when the banks are going through what they're going through at the moment in the Royal Commission, 
at the at the same time they're spending you know millions and millions of dollars on advertising on TV, mm. putting out different messages about what they're like, right? So that's a classic area for us, yeah. you know, where we can explain the difference between what these big companies do to put their message yeah. out, and the at reality. the same time the reality of what's going on. Yeah, and that's that's what I think the show's about now yeah. is showing that difference. So we really just dropped it because we went from being grown transfer to being grown planet or grown nation or we did a few different varieties around things around sports and and then we realized you know what the, the kind of base position was kind of just grown which was to look at the world through the prism of how mm. we're being sold to mm. Mm. so that's what we start with we just mm. look at something and going how are we being sold to here and how are these professional manipulators mm. manipulating us in this situation yeah so that's it there you go it's interesting you're looking at the banking inquiry i was thinking it would be great fun with some of the characters who've been giving evidence to be able to say to them okay do you accept that what you did was wrong right then they would be saying yes did you think you would be caught out now what are they going to say to that <laughs> right yeah, like yeah i thought i'd be caught out hmm you can't. That, that's stupid. That's or, the heart of the No, world. I didn't think no, I'd be caught out. I didn't out. think I'd be huh. caught out. Yeah. That's at the heart of it. That's why we were doing it. Yeah. Because we didn't think we'd Didn't think caught. we'd be caught. Yes. I mean, I think, why? We, all, I think next, we all get this, right, guys? Yeah. The, ne <laughs> the next step would be, why did you think you didn't, wouldn't be caught? Yeah. Well, because we donate to the Liberal Party. Yeah. Something like that. Oh, well, yeah, we, <laughs> we we give them a lot of money, and we thought, yeah. we thought yeah. there was an understanding yeah. that, that they the, looked in, in the other direction. Yeah, the coalition protection racket. Why not? Right. This is how things work, yeah. guys. Did you not understand? We're <laughs> banks. <laughs> um, all right, let's get into it. We can start doing this. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. Uh, my name is Will Anderson. I am the host of the podcast. It is a comfortable. Friday morning. I don't really know why I say that, but it just is setting the mood this morning. I've lowered the lights in my office a little for our guest today. Uh, not really sure why. I was trying to create an atmosphere or a vibe or something. I just felt a bit early in the morning to be having uh, the sort of in-depth chat that I reckon we might uh, be about to have. Um, I'm very excited to have him here. Uh, he's a person I've admired for a very long time, and uh, it's nice to have an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation with him about the world. Uh, my guest, this is how the podcast starts. Who are you? Julian Burnside. And uh, Julian, uh, you, what, what, what would you say is the major thing that you do right now? Tell people what you're up to at the moment. Well, I'm a barrister and so doing commercial litigation is what pays the rent and doing human rights work unpaid is what makes practising law seem useful. Now, Julian, clearly, I, I, I've read online that you get $5,000 per visit to every... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... You, you know. are in this massive refugee racket. I've, right. I've seen the blogs. You, the, the, the blogs and the tweets. Yeah, 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 that's right. <laughs> I've seen the tweets oh, from cars. It is fantastic what gets around with no factual foundation at all. Is, um, there is absolutely, like, I mean, you can, I mean, you've said it a million times and you certainly don't need to say it on this podcast because this is not a, one of those sort of podcasts, you know, but there is no money in helping refugees, is there? No. Well, and as a matter of principle, I don't charge, I don't accept any payment for any refugee work. I mean, I get invited to speak at all sorts of places about refugee issues and I'm sometimes offered a payment. I always refuse it or say, look, you're rich, send a donation to the ASRC or something like that because I figure it makes me 
too vulnerable to an attack on the footing that I don't actually mean what I'm saying if I get paid for it. Um, it, it I didn't realise it wouldn't stop the attacks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Julian, if you really cared, you know what you would do? You would actually have a refugee come and live in your house. How but, about that? Well, we have done. Yeah, I know. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You see, uh, Kate, my, Kate, my wife, is an artist. And when the Tampa thing happened, Kate was really offended by it. And she said, uh, look, this is not what Australia is like. Most Australian houses have a spare room. Um, we should set up spare rooms for refugees. That was her thinking. Artists think like that. And, um, and I said, well, look, if we're going to urge people to give refugees free accommodation at home, we have to, have to lead by example. So since late 2001, we've had refugees living at home with us, free of charge. Um, and it's been an interesting experience. Uh, I want to talk more about that, and I'm sure we will. But uh, I want to start with some other things first, if you don't mind. So uh, what I ask people uh, all the time on this podcast, it's mm. the loose conceit of the podcast for a, for a conversation, which is, do you have a particular philosophy towards something? It can actually be an actual philosophy or it can be more a, you know, a motto or a way of, you know, going about things. But is there is there one that you, a principle of some kind that you have? Um, I, I do have a philosophy. I don't think it fits into any particular school. One thing I'm not is I'm not a utilitarian. That's mm. the one school of philosophy that I don't accept. Um, I guess if I had to identify a philosophical precept, it is... The golden rule, which is common to every philosophy except for utilitarianism, which is you do to other people as you would have them do to you. And it's really interesting when you research it, you see that there's <clears throat> hardly a philosophy or a religion that does not have that expressed in some form or another. Um, and it's a pretty good idea. Yeah, because it is a pretty good idea. Except, I... except there's one trick <laughs> yes. where utilitarianism does come in handy and that's the, the old trope of you're in a train and it's heading down the track and if you do nothing, five babies will be killed. But if you pull a lever, you'll be diverted onto a side track and only one baby will be killed. And so you ask people, which, what would you do? And most people end up saying, I'd pull the lever so that only one baby gets killed. So then there's an interesting way of switching it um, because utilitarianism will give you one answer and that is pull the lever. So then uh, switch the hypothesis. You are now a doctor in a hospital and you've got five babies as patients. One needs a new liver, one needs a new kidney, one needs new heart, lungs, etc. And a healthy baby comes in for something to be done to its toenails. You could save the five babies by killing that one and harvesting its organs. What will you do? And of course everyone says, oh no, no, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> it's almost like you're saying the world is a really complicated place and there's not one solution for everything. Uh, <laughs> utilitarianism doesn't always give you the right answer. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you're right. It's complicated. It is complicated, isn't it? I mean, even with the golden rule, uh, you know, I used to have a little bit of stand-up about this, but, you know, because I am not a, a spiritual person myself, but I, I think that often, you know, one of the things that is interested in me about religion is the fact that they believe in so many of the same things that, that I find it weird that they don't just concentrate on the fact that they believe in so many of the same things and you know worry about the things you don't believe in a little bit mm. on the sides but you believe in like a heap of the same things like you have that in common mm. 
you know, all these major religions have some form of the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm. Uh, I would add a caveat, I always said. First, get the permission of others to do unto them <laughs> what you would have them do unto you. Yes. Because not everybody wants done unto them what you like done unto you. Yeah. You know, understand that there are differences in the way that you perceive the world and other people perceive the world. Mm. So for you, what is it then? If, you, if that is not what it is, you've defined it by what you're not there. You haven't necessarily given me an answer to what your particular philosophy is. You've said that it is the that it is of the golden rule, but I imagine it's more mm. than that. Like that that feels a little simplistic. To yeah, me. I, I think, I mean, I haven't really thought about this before, but if I had to, I would say that your conduct, while guided broadly by the golden rule, uh, should be guided in particular by two principles. One is the importance of decent behaviour and the other is the importance of good manners. And when I say good manners, I do not mean etiquette the way you hold your knife and fork or anything like that. Uh -huh. But um, if you look around at what Australia is doing at the moment to refugees in particular and maybe also to people who get robo-debts and are about to be hit with 9% interest on them, um, it's just indecent. It's just not decent to think we'll chase some money that we assert without foundation someone received from the government uh, that they weren't entitled to. People who've got almost no money, you're going to hit them with 9% interest and chase them for that money. What about chasing the big banks for some of the tax that they owe? What about chasing the big end of town? Because they've got heaps of money. Why do you think that this happens? I understand the the politics of kicking down. I understand the media value in, you know, don't look at the you know, fact that the Murdoch newspapers weren't, you know, paying tax, you know, because they've got an article in there that's telling you that the doll bludge is the one who's really ripping you off, right? Mm. I get that value. But then the implementation of these punitive programs that really are going over after people for a small amount of money and people in the most vulnerable of all situations, you know, to them it's a life-saving amount yeah. of money to, in the grand scheme of, you know, running a government, it's a small amount of money. Mm. Why implement it to that strict a regime that I understand the PR of it, but I don't understand the real life implementation of it. Where do you think that comes from? Um, I think they do it because they can. They want to be seen to be doing something which looks practical. And of course, governments lie to us. It really offends me. It really offends me. I think that people who are our political leaders shouldn't be telling us lies about what they're doing. But they lie to us about refugees. They lie to us about so-called dull bludgers. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who cheat the welfare system badly and, okay, chase them if you need to chase some money. But if they're actually worried about money, um, why do they waste money treating refugees the way they do? Uh, most people don't recognise the fact that if we take refugees and shove them off to Nauru, it costs us about $530,000 per person per year to keep them there. The most of the people on Manus and Nauru now have been there for about five years. We could have actually saved money. If money is the object, and it seems to be the way you hear people talk, um, we could have saved money if when those people arrived at Christmas Island, part of Australia, asking for protection from persecution, if we'd given them a million bucks in cash each and said, take this, piss off and go find somewhere that wants you. We would have saved money. It'd be terrible right. policy, but we would have actually spent less money doing it that way than doing it what we're doing. Now, that's 
ridiculous. So why does the government on the one hand say we're protecting our borders from illegals, all of that's false, um, and we're worried about money, therefore we're going to attack uh, doll bludgers? Well, I mean, even that idea that you hear the extra step of that, which is, you know, these refugees will come here and be on the dole. You're like, good. Be on the dole. Good, and that'll save us heaps of money. And <laughs> take our could. jobs. <laughs> yeah, at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I mean, if they were allowed into the community and they were on the dole, yeah. then it would cost vastly less. Yeah, substantially less. And, of course, the money they spend in the community right. would generate economic activity. Well, this is the other thing that people never think about, right? Is you, Firstly, you know, if you get people here, even if they are in those circumstances, the money is then being spent at least on local businesses yeah. and being circulated back into those communities. Yeah. It's interesting. Wilson Security, who have their little signs up on the public mm-hmm. parks around the country uh, and run the security system in the offshore detention centres, turns out they were incorporated in Panama. Now, that means that they're not embarrassed by the need to pay tax to the government, the millions, probably billions of dollars we pay them to do the dirty work. Now, as a barrister, of course, I'm not allowed to encourage people to break the law and I'm not encouraging anyone to break the law, but it does strike me as an amusing possibility that someone will get some sticky posters made Uh, to be stuck across the Wilson Security signs in the local park saying, Wilson Security, Manus, Nauru, Panama. No, neither of us us could definitely encourage anybody to do that. No, absolutely. I'm not encouraging anyone. I'm just expressing something that entertains me. Obviously, I have a lawyer here for every recording of this podcast. As you (laughs) know, you can see my team of lawyers over in the corner. It's the major over the head of the podcast, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, so it is interesting to me that these companies that take so much from the Australian taxpayer and then give nothing back to the Australian taxpayer are not are the ones who keep getting rewarded while these small, the tiniest of tiny people down the other end mm. um, are the ones who are persecuted. What You say well, that our politicians lie to us, but... Is, is the problem not as much that we have just become numb to their lies or that, yeah, that we sit back and believe their lies? Because there's got to be, every day, to just go about your day, like, I, I remember being uh, on an overseas trip. It was a friend's wedding. And uh, look, it got on to the subject of, you know, uh, refugees and Australia's treatment of refugees and my opinions on said topic and there were 10 people at the table and then there were nine people at the table and then there were eight people at the table. And <laughs> yeah. I walked them one by one from this pleasant thing because once you start thinking about it and talking about it, it's hard to stop talking about it. It's hard to stop saying, I'm embarrassed by this luckiest of all countries, this country that considers itself to be one thing mm. and prides itself on this idea of mateship and friendliness and openness and in- inclusion but we can't hmm. we can't i'm not saying that some of the things we pride ourselves on that make up that aren't true they are but there is a massive stain also on that which is a our treatment of you know refugees and the other one is our treatment of our indigenous people and yep. our inability to reconcile with our history now i don't think it's a black armband or any to say we could do better 
and we need to be doing better. I wouldn't even mind if... A, sorry, this is this is how I walk people out of the room, Julian. <laughs> but I wouldn't even mind if a politician came out and said, we understand right now that what, what we'd like to say is how we're treating refugees is terrible. We can't think of another better solution at the moment, but we at least acknowledge that what we are doing is against the Australian spirit and how we go about things. Mm. And we are constantly looking for a better solution. And here are some other ideas and we're going to debate these ideas and we're going to do this and do, and make your case. Make your case for border security. Make your case for any of these things that you want to make. But start, just admit that what we're doing now is not right. Admit and, that and then we... Yeah. I, you know what? But this fucking bullshit where... Sorry, sorry, but... No, where you, we, you stole the word from me. <laughs> where... We won't even acknowledge that what we're doing is wrong. Is wrong. But we're a very complex society. Think of, We're obsessed with the idea of terrorism. Um, and yet, on uh, a detailed understanding of why Ned Kelly did what he did, he was a terrorist by contemporary statutory uh, norms. And one of the most famous events in our history, the Eureka Stockade, was on any view a terrorist uprising. So... Why is it that we honour in our history um, a couple of terrorists? It's interesting. Uh, we're, we're just incoherent about it. But you know, going back to the start, I said politicians lie to us. Calling it border security, border protection is bullshit. It's not. Because the way it started actually was in after the Tampa, um, the, where you know, the Tampa is a Norwegian cargo ship, rescued 430-odd... Afghan asylum seekers whose boat was falling apart in the Indian Ocean. Australia asked the Tampa to rescue them because it knew where the boat was, knew where the Tampa was. So the captain of the Tampa rescued them, put them on the decks and uh, realised a number of them were in a very difficult condition. Some were, you know, there were pregnant women, there were people unconscious, it was very difficult. So he heads to Christmas Island, Christmas Island, part of Australia, and it was on his route of travel. Um, when he, he thought he'd put him ashore at Christmas Island and the Australian government said you're not permitted to enter Australian territorial waters off Christmas Island. But he decided that in the spirit of maritime tradition he would do that because they needed help. So he goes into, he enters Australian territorial waters off Christmas Island, the SAS go out, they take control of the bridge at gunpoint and then there's a standoff. And uh, that's the point where I got asked if I would act pro bono in a case on behalf of the asylum seekers so just before we go on because i think this is really interesting because this feels like a moment in your life as well as well as the story and i Mm. definitely want to hear that but i'd love to hear a little bit about where you were at at that time and what made you interested in this in particular because this was a bit of a turning point for you at least in your interest in this oh yeah but i didn't know at the time yeah right (laughs) i thought it'd be one of those things you're going to court friday afternoon roll the arm over no problem well that's interesting Um, too that's uh, what you um, thought at the time yeah i I didn't think there'd be a problem because it seemed to me absolutely obvious that you can't just hold a bunch of people hostage on the steel decks of a ship in the tropical sun um and i agreed to do the case not because i knew anything about refugee policy i didn't not because I knew anything about maritime law, I didn't, uh, but because I've always felt the heat. And I thought it would be awful being on the steel deck of a ship on the equator in the tropical sun. So I thought, well, that's miserable, so we can't do that. And the solicitor who briefed me had previously, recently, briefed me for Carlos Gabal, the 
fugitive Mexican banker. And he came up with a very clever case theory, asked me if I'd run it, and I said, yeah. So that was pretty good. So anyway, the Tampa case, as it turns out, it wasn't going to court Friday night, roll the arm over, because the Commonwealth turned up and said, we want a trial starting right now. And so the case ran Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It was very intense. So they they can just demand a, a trial starts immediately, can they? Uh, well, anyone can demand it. Yeah. In the circumstances, the judge went along with it, and he handed down judgment in our favour, as it turns out, um, a little bit later, and he handed down judgment at 2.15 in the afternoon in Melbourne on the 11th of September 2001. Think about it. Nine hours later, the attack on America happens, and all of a sudden... All terrorists are Muslims, therefore all Muslims are terrorists, all boat people are Muslims, even if they're Tamils, and therefore they're all dangerous. Howard started calling him illegal. The whole exercise is called border protection. It is a lie. They don't break any law by coming to Australia uninvited and asking for protection. And uh, almost all of them historically, have been found by us to be actual refugees, people to whom we owe an obligation of protection. That, that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, if you actually... There is, this is something that you don't need to speculate on. There is evidence of, you know, yeah. you know time after time where these things have been tested that yeah. people have proven to be legitimate refugees. Yeah. So, again, how, how does the value of the the lies, the language become the prevailing narrative when there's so much evidence, when you, when you put it like that, when you say, I'm not saying, you know, just open the borders and let people, I'm saying you can test people, but if people are found to be legitimate refugees, we have an obligation to look after these Mm. people. We've signed up to it. We've said that we have this Mm. obligation, then we should do it. It would save us money. Mm. Uh, It is the right thing to do. It's decent. Treat them decently. No, so you know, how has the narrative become about well, illegals and uh, because people believe these things? Think about the timing. This is September the 11th, 2001. The, the federal election was in November of 2001. John Howard's future was very questionable uh, until September 11 happened. And uh, he went to the polls on the tag, we will decide who comes to the country and the circumstance in which they come which, if he was talking about migration policy, is absolutely right. If he's talking about refugee policy, absolutely wrong. Um, and the, there's a way of testing it. <clears throat> Here you are in this very nice uh, new apartment in Port Melbourne. You can decide who comes to your house and the circumstance in which they come. And if you get fed up with people coming along and yappering on in podcasts, you can say, I don't want any visitors till Thursday week. It would be a little unfriendly, but you're entitled to do it. Right. So next morning, a little kid runs up to your front door and says, please help me, there's a man with a big knife chasing me. You could say, come back on Thursday week, but that would be indecent. Um, What you should do is bring her in, sit her down, check her story. If she's telling the truth, protect her. And if she's not telling the truth, send her away. The fact you didn't invite her and didn't want any guests until Thursday week is beside the point. Now, that's a fair analogy, I think, with refugee situation. Mm, I don't know. I kind of get the feeling that she's coming in to steal my stuff. Yeah, right. Okay. You know? well, double so. check. Double check. Yeah. But <laughs> check first before you condemn her. And and by the way, talking about right, I, check. I, I cho- I choose, There's a process. Just I, check. Yeah, I choose the a, a child deliberately for that example because 
on Nauru now, we have got, I don't know, 50 children, refugee children who are held there. Do we need to be protected from them? Why is putting them on Nauru at an enormous cost? Why is that protecting our borders? You know, it's just ridiculous. She's not a criminal and we don't need to be protected from her. It's what conditions are children in? I've spoken, my good friend Jared McKenna has been on this podcast a couple of times, uh, one time after he just recently, uh, you know, been over uh, to experience the conditions himself. What sort of conditions are these children in in these places? Don't limit it to children. All of the people on Nauru are in wretched conditions. Um, it's that they the 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 detention cell processing center is no longer closed but the but the locals are really hostile to the refugees and so the the refugees stay in the processing center as a matter of choice to protect themselves i mean women have been raped by locals there um locals uh have been taken on as guards and so they stand at the showers and make sure that the showers are safe and there are reported cases of locals guarding the showers saying to young women that they can have an extra minute in the shower if they expose themselves to the guard. I mean, it's just mad stuff. Um, but it's not surprising that the locals are hostile to them because Nauru's recent history has been fairly unhappy. You know, they had this vast deposit of phosphate, which has all been mined out to the great profit of international companies. Um, the the proceeds of the phosphate mining were paid into a trust fund for the benefit of all Nauruans. It's only got a population of 10,000 people. Um, and they were, for a time, the richest community on the face of the planet. You know, every individual Nauruan had a really, really significant share in a very, very large amount of money. But all the world's carpetbaggers came through and robbed them of their money. So they're now broke. And that's... Um, I can understand them being a bit cheesed off about that. The uh, other thing is this idea that we are outsourcing, that we are, like, I mean, it's just the equivalent of us feeling like, well, you know what, we, we're just doing so well in Australia yeah. that we can pay other countries to deal with something that we don't want to deal with and then <clears throat> uh, act surprised when the, those people that we wouldn't wel- welcome with open arms aren't being welcomed with open arms in other places. Um, they're not being welcomed with open arms. That's the. I mean, there's only two places that have gone along with our Pacific Solution idea, and that's Nauru and Papua New Guinea, where they're put on Manus Island, which is north of Port Moresby. It's almost on the equator, and uh, it's pretty wretched. And there also the the locals are very hostile to the refugees. And, of course, those countries don't want the refugees staying permanently, the ones who've been assessed as refugees, they want them to move on to somewhere else, but they can't go anywhere. Because, um, you know, New Zealand, good on them, put up their hand to say, we'll take some. And and our Peter Dutton, who I think is probably the worst politician we've ever had in this country, um, he made it clear that it was a question for Nauru or, Man- or PNG uh, and New Zealand, respectively, what they would do. Because, you know, we say it's nothing to do with us. And that's, as of legally, that's probably right. But uh, he then said, of course, both countries should be aware of the trade consequences. 
if people are accepted into New Zealand. Because he's he says he's worried about people using New Zealand as a back door. Well, after we've mistreated them for four or five years, I don't really think they're going to be that keen to come here. Yeah, clearly Peter Dutton's also never been to New Zealand. It's it's, <laughs> hey, a, no. it's a much nicer place. <laughs> yeah. uh, they are much nicer to refugees and more inclusive society. They're yeah. not going to want to come to Australia after they've had a few weeks no. in New Zealand. They'll yeah. be fine. I think the problem... <clears throat> I'm very worried about Dutton, actually. I mean, I think he's dishonest um, and he's unscrupulous. And I guess if he has a philosophy, I don't agree with it. But what worries me about Dutton is that he's making things progressively more and more difficult for refugees here, refugees uh, in offshore processing. And um, we are now doing things to refugees which would have been unthinkable a decade ago or two decades ago. And I... What are those I, things? <clears throat> Tell me what, okay. what, what do Re- you mean? Re- reducing the allowances to which they're entitled if they're not working. You know, if they, if they don't have a job, they get nothing. They're supposed to live on fresh air. Um, uh, the the entitlements that they get have been cut back and cut back. He's refusing to let them go from offshore processing to New Zealand, um, something which you would have thought we would welcome with open arms rather than continuing to spend vast amounts of money keeping them in wretched circumstances. That, and I mean, that, that one... Let that me give you another... Be, if we can just... is <clears throat> It is insane to me, the New Zealand thing. That's when you... Like, everyone's got to realise that it's about something much more than what they pretended it was about. Because if hmm. these people are able to be accepted in New Zealand and have these, you know, be welcomed there and have better conditions, the, the fact that we stand in front of another country, even the fact that we try to stand in front of another country exercising the right to take them, hmm. says something horrible about the way that we're going about our international politics. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, but the... The other thing about Dutton is that, uh, you know, there have been a few cases recently of young children, when I say young, like 10 years old, 11 years old, uh, held on Nauru who have been suffering very serious psychiatric problems uh, for which the medical system on Nauru is not capable of dealing with. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and even even the local even uh, international health and medical services IHMS, which looks after medicine for the refugees, IHMS said the facilities on Nauru are not adequate to deal with this child's problem. Um, so you go to court, ask the court for an order to bring the kids here for proper treatment, and the Dutton sends someone along to resist that. He would rather they stay in Nauru incapable of being treated than be brought here and get the treatment they need. And why do they need it? Because of the conditions he's put them in. It's just outrageous. And and what worries me about Dutton is, um, and I know this is contentious, but I'm worried that he is gradually persuading the Australian public to think nothing of increasingly bad treatment of innocent human beings by denigrating them, by making us fear them, by making us hate them. And that is precisely what happened in Germany between 1933 and 1938. Now, I'm not saying we're on the same path, I'm not saying it's going to end up the same way, but it's the same process. And I think you have to be worried about that. Where does that... It's it's such a hard thing to imagine what someone's motivations are to be Mm. so cruel. Um, 
again, it's like the example I was talking before. I understand the idea of for you know political philosophy and for political leverage. People, you know, create you know enemies or whatever, and they use them. I mean, that's happened forever. But to be so horribly cruel in our implementation of these things, as if what we were were doing wasn't already terrible enough, that mm. somehow we needed to make it even more terrible. And the fact that these, you know, these people and you know these children have to be the example, so that you know they have to be the head that we hang on the spike, you mm. know, outside our castle, so that everybody else knows that this yeah. is not a safe place for you. But they we- dress it up. They dress it up. Peter Dutton and others in the coalition say we're so worried about people drowning that uh, we have to do this as a deterrent. So why and, is and, that and not a legitimate is, argument? Because what do we do with the people who don't drown? We punish them. Mm. Yeah, that shows no no concern about people drowning. Uh, you know, if if the people who didn't drown were treated well and you know comforted in their circumstances, then I might believe the politicians. But I do not believe them. They're not interested in people drowning. They don't care. Also, if you are interested in people not drowning, like turning around boats in the middle of the ocean yeah. isn't the best way to necessarily there, there, stop them from. <laughs> there's another interesting thing about the boat turnbacks. Um, the Commonwealth Criminal Code sets out the elements of the crime of people smuggling. And by turning boats back and pushing them back to to Indonesia, we are undoubtedly involved in the criminal offence of people smuggling. (laughs) Because people smuggling has the elements of um, uh, arranging or facilitating a person's entry into a country of which they are not a citizen without them going through the usual... Um, passport control okay so what do we think who do we think is on the boats do we really think they're all indonesians no do we think they're going to line up at the entry point and show a passport or something no so what are we doing we are facilitating their arrival in a country of which they're not a citizen uh, and we do that for the political benefit of being able to wave our arms and say no boats have arrived so you get now. Can I just go back to the Please. actual question you oh, asked? Yes, yes. Yeah, the 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 Tampa litigation. Uh, you know what? As, that was literally the thing I was going to bring back to. Of so course, of course. You, you you were going to say, <laughs> look, you're going off the track. Come on, bring you back. Okay. Um, you asked if it was a turning point. It was in retrospect, although I didn't think at the time that it was going to be. I didn't realise at the time it was going to be, but. Um, by doing the Tampa case, I came across a lot of people who knew a whole lot more about refugee policy than I knew. And I learned a lot of stuff about what we're doing that made me very uncomfortable. Um, and I was aware of a, an observation by Aaron Dutty Roy, who wrote The God of Small Things, but is also an activist in India. And she once said that a thing once seen cannot be unseen. And if you've seen a great moral wrong... To remain silent is as much a political act as to speak against it. And that put me in the very uncomfortable position that I decided to speak against it, which was made me very unpopular for a while. It's an easy thing to uh, say and it's a great thing to believe and I believe it to be true. Hmm. But there is still a gap between uh, you know, understanding that and wanting to implement that in your life and then nailing your sort of papers to the door in the way that you have on this. You know, it's not it's not that you said, I've seen this and this is unfair and I'm going to make sure that my UNHCR membership's paid in full every year and mm. I'll go to a couple of rallies. I mean, you've 
that's not what you've done. You this has become a you know, well, a decade long more, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like <laughs> but I'm there, doing the maths now. It's but like there, two decades. I actually thought I actually thought when I got involved in it, I thought as long as fifty percent plus one of the public think what we're doing is wrong, the policy will change. Hmm. I thought it would take six months. <laughs> right. I got that wrong because that was September of 2001. Do we feel, do you feel like we're in a, in regard to the public opinion, I mean, and we, you've already talked about how we're in a worse place now than we were. Um, do we think, do you think that, where's the public battle at at the moment, do you think? What do you think the general Australian's position on what you're talking about is at the moment? Um, my impression is that the the average punter reckons the government is protecting our borders from illegals, and and that's a vote winner. That's why both major parties seem to make common cause on the issue. I think it's time for Labor to say, look, they've been lying to you all these years. Here are the facts. We can do better than this. Uh, whether they'll do that ever, I don't know, but they should. But, you know, the, you wouldn't have both major parties taking the positions they are if they weren't satisfied by, you know, polling that that the message is working. So, but I actually believe that most Australians are more decent and that if they knew the facts, they wouldn't go along with it. I hope that's right. I, I think that is right. So how do you get the facts to them in the current media environment in the world in which we live um how do you get that message out to people i don't know um it used to be when i got involved in this initially um all sorts of people would come along and listen to me talk because i was like a dog that walks on its hind legs you know there's a commercial silk suddenly yapping at the heels of government <laughs> but very quickly i was being tagged as a rusted on lefty uh, which is not true and um and um so now only i think broadly speaking the people who come to listen to me talk are people who already agree with me so that's the problem right like it's not a problem in and of itself i think that there is a great comfort and you know, whatever in somebody, you know, providing something for people to go, we want to do something and we want this mm. to be distilled in a way that we can understand and we want to go to a place where people believe the same thing as us and we will be energised from that and hopefully we will all go off in our own ways and mm. that will in itself create something other than maybe everyone in that room believes what you said, but maybe you've energised them in a way that they can then go yep. and spread that message to people who yep. don't. But G giving them a few key facts. Yes, the, the, key the, facts are, is I mean, good, right? The, the 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 date of the first judgment in Tampa, I think, is significant. But the other interesting fact is Nauru. You know, Nauru is a small independent republic in the Pacific. Its land area is two square kilometres smaller than Tullamarine Airport, and yet we think it's a good dumping ground for refugees. Nonsense. Uh, letting the press, the power of you know, people seeing these images and not seeing these images. The difference in that. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I would suspect the cynic in me would always say that if the government have nothing to hide in these things, then, you know. Why hide it? Why hide it? Yes. That's always, you know, if they're hiding it and they're fighting so hard to hide it, yep. then what are they hiding? Now, uh, 
is part of what they've done so effectively kept the world's media from seeing pictures uh, sorry it's kept the media from being in there so that Australians can actually see it for themselves um I think that's been an important part of it because I think if most Australians saw what's going on, they would not approve. Um, but then, who knows, you may get some brazen politician. I mean, remember when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister? There's a thought to comfort you. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's hard to even comprehend that yeah. was true. <laughs> uh, he, he received a report from the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on Torture who reported that in relation to five cases that have been referred to him from Manus Island, um, Australia was in breach of its obligations under the Convention Against Torture because the conditions in which they're being held yeah. constitute a breach of the Convention Against Torture. Tony Abbott's public response was, Australians are sick and tired of being lectured to by the UN. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's breathtaking. Yeah. That is so brazen. It is just amazing. I mean, I was also sick and tired of being lectured to by the UN. And <laughs> I was hoping our solution of that would be to stop doing things stop. that yeah. we'd be lectured about. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Was, I was like, yeah. we can clear this up. Yes. Let's stop torturing people. Yeah, <laughs> they, good idea. They, they, might, they might give us a pat on the back. Yeah. There's an interesting thing. While uh, we're lobbying to be on all their yeah. councils at the same time. I don't know if you remember, but in, was it February 2014, a bloke called Reza Barati was killed yeah, on Manus. And Scott Morrison, who I think is probably the second worst politician we've ever had, um, w w went public. He was the immigration minister at the time and he said that Reza Barati had escaped from the detention centre and had been killed by locals, yeah. which is, actually gives you a very interesting insight to what he understood about the attitude of the locals to refugees. Um a week or two later, I received some signed, handwritten eyewitness statements, including one from a bloke called Benham Sattar. Benham Sattar was the roommate of Reza Barati, and he said, no, no, what happened? Reza Barati was inside the camp. He was running across the compound trying to get to our room, and he was approached by a guy, one of the people on the Australian payroll, holding a long stick with nails sticking out of the end, at the far end of the stick. And he swung it at Rasbarati several times, hitting him on the head with it, lacerating his scalp terribly until he fell to the ground, bleeding profusely. He was then surrounded by 13, 12 or 13 guards, people on the Australian payroll, who took it in turns to kick him in the head and in the torso and until another guy came along, another person on the Australian payroll, with a big rock, brought it crashing down on Rasbarati's head and Satar's statement says, and that killed him. And I know it killed him because the next time one of the guards kicked him, he didn't flinch. Now, Benham Satar, for his trouble, was dragged into, a, into the um, security cabin and tied to a chair and beaten up. And he was told that if he didn't withdraw his eyewitness statement, he would be taken outside the camp where he'd be publicly raped by locals. Now, that's, that's what Australia is doing to people. And, of course, the, the, it was another two years before there was a trial. It was a plain case of murder. Benham Satar's statement had identified by name the people who were centrally involved. And, um, strangely enough, the two people who were charged uh, have managed to escape. And they've left... The, uh, the, the Australians who were part of the guard that, uh, group that attacked... Barati, they were allowed to get back to Australia, so they're beyond the reach of the PNG authorities. And 
the PNG locals who actually killed him and were charged and convicted of murder two years later somehow escaped. Benham Sattar is still in Manus. How do you how do you keep fighting? How do you not want to sometimes just like I mean I understand. I understand of course like once once you've seen you can't unsee. Hmm. But you've seen so much now and there must be a point hmm. where you just must think not that you want to give up the fight but that you just long for the fight to be over. Oh I do. I long for the fight to be over. Um but I guess I'm just persistent right <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if peter dutton ever happened to listen to this i'm not fucking giving up <laughs> and i think peter dutton's gonna listen but you no. know probably somebody from the herald sun will listen and they'll yeah. take choice quotes out of it and, yeah, yeah you know yeah, like yeah. oh andrew bolt will write another blog yeah exactly you'll get a yeah. bolt blog out of yeah. it uh how have you dealt with that aspect of what it is that you do the 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 you have become for a you know people like an Andrew Bolt, you know, who likes to write the same blog post every four days, and you know, so it'll be like you know Julian Burnside and refugees, and then the next day it'll be the ABC, and then it'll be the Green something, and then you know, like I mean, you know, yeah. like it's all cut and paste uh, down at Bolt Corp. But you become you when you become this you know prominent advocate, and people want to pursue an agenda that you know they don't want to hear the things that you're saying it doesn't fit the narrative they're mm. trying to put out publicly, then what comes with that is a lot of playing the man. Mm. Like what comes with that is a lot of people not wanting to answer your arguments or not wanting to, you know, have a debate about what it is that you're saying, the facts of the case. You know, they'd rather... The, tac the best tactic is to devalue the idea that your opinion is legitimate in the first place. Mm. I imagine that must be difficult. Uh, it is. It is. But um, I don't plan to give up. And I can't remember who said it, but someone, someone like Nelson Mandela or someone like that said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they attack you, then you win. <laughs> so I didn't know the attack phase would last so long. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me, give me some hope. Give me something that uh, that maybe people who are listening to this, let, let's assume that Peter Dutton hasn't whacked it on his iPod and let's assume that Scott Morrison isn't going through a contemplative period of his life where he regrets the mm. decisions he made and realised that once in his political career he had all this power and he could have actually used it for something good instead of he made Australia, the country that he purported to love, a nastier and meaner place and then Dutton tagged in like the real villain that Scott Morrison prepared the way for because that's what Morrison's got to remember. Yeah. Reckon he probably is a slightly more decent human being than Peter Dutton, but he made the space. The decent human being uh, made the space. Except this, except to... this, except this. Um, I've read Morrison's maiden speech in Parliament and he makes a great deal of the uh, fact that he's a very religious person. He actually quoted portions from the Bible about his philosophy. And yet he behaved as a parliamentarian. He behaved in ways that were irreconcilable with those views. Now, that strikes me as being evidence of a very deeply flawed person. Now, I mean, Dutton's flaws are obvious. Morrison's flaws uh, come not just in his behaviour, but the disconformity between his behaviour and his apparently sincere beliefs. I, it is the, the ultimate thing about this issue that I think is that 
What was the reason that you wanted to get into power? Was it power for power's sake? If so, I understand perhaps some of this. This is about hanging on to power and, Mm. you know, you don't care who gets hurt along the way as long as you can hang on to your power. If that's the explanation, then I guess it makes some sense. But in any other way, if if we are to believe the thing that we are told about politicians, that most of them get into it for good enough reasons, they believe in some cause or something or whatever, I don't think anyone's cause was, I want to persecute children that I want to torture innocent people who are just fleeing a horrible life to get to somewhere better. You can't start out with that. Mm. I, I, I hope you can't. Anyway, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about what people who actually care about this can do. What would be a more practical solution? What would be in mm. your like, you know, opinion and you know, mm. just your opinion, uh, but in your opinion, what would be if you could tomorrow change what we're doing, and they, they, they decide to come to you and they go, you know what? Let's assume that Dutton and Morrison both listen to this podcast and they're <laughs> both turned around by the compelling arguments that have been put forward. Yeah, okay. And they, they, an say, they come to you and they say, we need an alternate policy. What is it? Yep. Okay. Well, as an alternate policy, first of all, I would shut down offshore processing for good and all. Okay. And I would, you know, if you have to sell it to the public, you sell it on the basis of, well, we've been lying to you. They're not criminals. They're not dangerous. We don't need to protect ourselves from them and it's costing us a fortune. So we're closing it down. Um, Second, I would say that our annual refugee intake should be increased quite significantly. Um, At the moment, it's pretty modest and we could take more because we're a big country. Um, Third, I would say that if people come here seeking protection who haven't had prior permission then I would say first rule is you treat them decently. Um, And uh, by that I mean you don't lock them up, you don't treat them badly. There may be a few instances where because you've got concerns about their security position, maybe they need to be held in detention for a bit while you check it out, but you don't mistreat them because we are supposed to be a decent country. That's the principle. And would that be a problem demographically? Well, the numbers have never been all that great. The numbers coming by boat have never been that great. Um, we probably had more... Well, 1788 was a big, big time for boat arrivals. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... Um, yeah. The indigenous it, Australians might have liked yeah. the policy that was more about them deciding who came here and yeah. what circumstances well, back I, then, I, I, I imagine. actually saw a great cartoon once, and it's obviously January 1788, and it's a black fella looking down at the first fleet in Sydney Cove and... He's got a can of British paints in one hand and on an adjacent surface he's scrawled, stop the boats. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but um, we, we, uh, uh, we, I mean, it's an old trope, but we've got more, um, we've got more non-Australians in the community who've overstayed their visas, who've come as backpackers from Canada, America, England and so on more of them than we've ever had uh, boat people coming seeking protection. But if people are seeking protection, then I think we owe them an obligation to treat them decently. And I, I, um, in connection with the film that I've been involved in recently, I went to Jordan. And in Jordan, with very challenging geography, with Israel on the left and Iraq on the right and Syria on the top... Now, the premise um, of this film, by the way, for people who don't know, was that you went to various 
places uh, and looked at how refugees were being treated in those places. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, that's right. It's called Border Politics and it, they took me all around the world were examining the treatment of refugees in different countries. And I have to say, bottom line, a lot of our friends like Britain and America think we're behaving very badly and I would agree with them. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> Jordan was the only non-Western country they took me to Jordan, with this challenging geography, gets a lot of people cruising in asking for protection. Um, when I was there in the middle of 2017, they had about a million Syrian refugees living in the community. People who just walked in, walked across the border, saying, you know, we've got to get away, got to get safe. And <clears throat> they don't get locked up. They, they're treated properly. They're allowed to work. Um, and Jordan is a small country with a difficult economy because they don't have oil. Their population is less than half Australia's population, and yet they're behaving like that. Now, I spent a couple of days up north at a place called Alzatari. <clears throat> Alzatari is about four kilometres, three kilometres south of the Syrian border. There's a refugee camp there. It's a camp, not a detention centre. Um, the... There, when I was there, there were about 80,000 refugees in the camp. And there, it gives them accommodation, free accommodation. Some of them have jobs outside. They can leave each morning, come back in the evening, and that's all good. But because it's such a big camp, there are inside El Zatari refugee camp 2,000 shops established by refugees and run by refugees, including a shop where you can hire bridal gowns. And that struck me as the most eloquent illustration of the fact that refugees are treated in a way that maintains their optimism for the future. It's magnificent. Uh, what things did you learn from that experience that you think are interesting things to bring back here in the way that you know we might look at a new way forward? Were there particular ways of integrating you know, communities or particular ways of settling people into new environments or just anything in the execution of it that you sort of had not seen before or you found interesting? Well, not in Jordan particularly. I mean, Jordan's attitude was interesting. But um, in terms of integrating people in the community, Scotland is doing it extraordinarily well. So and, what did they And do? so is Germany in Scotland. Um, in Scotland, when I was there, <clears throat> they had received and settled in the community more than a 1,000 Syrian refugees in the previous 12 months, which is way outstrips us. I mean, Scotland's um, population is, what, about the same as Sydney. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I went to a couple of places in Scotland where there were Syrian refugees who'd been let into the community and they were not just allowed to live in the community, they were being embraced by the community. They were really, really made welcome. They're allowed to work they, and they are made to feel part of the community. I mean, it was really genuine. I saw the same thing in Bavaria. Um, but in Scotland, I had interesting conversations with various people and I said, look, you're doing this fantastic job and we're doing what we do. H how do you account, how do you get away with the way you are treating them, it's so good. And, you know, the answers were, these are human beings, they need help. Simple, really, really simple. They're human beings, they need help. And I would ask, is there any politician in this country who would be willing to say those words? I suspect the answer is no. It'd be amazing to hear Peter Dutton say something like that. In, in Bavaria, 
I went to three small towns in southern Bavaria where they've received a lot of refugees. They have again, the, and the mayors of each of those towns were kind of not really persuaded in advance that it was a good idea to have these characters coming in, different culture, different everything. But they thought, well, we'll give it a try. And so what they did was put them in accommodation in the centre of the village, not at the outskirts, in the centre. And they made them welcome and helped them integrate in the community. And they are all now completely converted to the idea that treating refugees well is good. There has been some success in Australia with communities embracing mm. refugees and you know being very successfully integrated into the community, mm. right? Is yep, it, there are. Can you tell us about any of those? Is there any that come to mind for you that anywhere in Australia that's doing a good job with this sort of thing? Um, country towns typically do very well because country people understand what it's like. Um, and I think they're... Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the name of the town where the Loverduck Poultry Factory is, but they've done very well. They've really embraced the refugees who've come there. Uh, hey, I think the country, because I grew up in the country, I'm from country Victoria, Denison, uh, down uh, near Hayfield, uh, hmm. Sale, down that part of the world, East Gippsland. And the thing that I always said, it's funny because I grew up in a, in a time, you know, like in the 70s and 80s where you know, casual racism, you know, but that particularly mm. Australian brand of casual racism was still very, you know, prominent. The words that I would have heard and the jokes that I would have heard growing up were, mm. you know, not things that anyone would say in polite society these days. However, the thing that I also say is country towns are actually very, very inclusive. Mm. Like they're exclusive until they're inclusive. <clears throat> yep. uh, the example I use often is that, you know, I would have said the place I grew up was homophobic until one of the kids of, uh, you know, one of the country was gay and came home with his boyfriend and opened a cafe and then it was the most <laughs> embracing, you know, yeah. <laughs> tolerant yeah. community of all time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Once something becomes part of the community, the Chinese restaurant would be run by a Chinese person and they might be the only Chinese person mm. in town, but they needed to be a member of the community so they mm. become one it's mm. a small town everybody pitches in is the problem sometimes with city living that not everyone needs to be a community in the city so there is a capacity for communities you know it's happened through generations of immigration to this country as well that a community settles in an area where everybody settles and they don't necessarily integrate as quickly into the rest of the community i think that's probably right and um in to my observation, country country Australia, not just country Victoria, has been exemplary in the way they have responded to refugees, uh, if the refugees are allowed to be here, um, and the most effective, inspiring organisation I've had contact with in this connection is Rural Australians for Refugees, whose annual conference I was at in Wodonga a couple of weekends ago. Mm. They are terrific because they all understand exactly what you've said. And I, I, I mean, I, I think you don't get a sense of community in most big cities in Australia. Sometimes there are little pockets where there's a sense of local community because of the uh, suburb or whatever, but generally speaking, not much sense of community. Is there some value in... Uh, now, these things always get complicated, I guess, when, you know, you say, you know, that people should have the right to, you know, live where they like. If, if we accept that they have the right to come and live here, then perhaps, it, you know, is it prescriptive for us to say that they'd... But I, I'm less for saying that they 
can't, don't, I'm not trying to say they shouldn't be able to live in the city, but is there not some value in us having programs or offering incentives to the country areas in Australia that are struggling and would could deal with the you know the population mm. and the injection of cash and these sort of things? Could Absolutely. the government not have programs in place to say, you know, not only can you you know we're going to let you in, but you know we've set up this whole thing in Newcastle and we have these programs and this environment and you know English as a second language set up in town or you know the sort of you know, things that people would need to sort mm. of grow into a community that could not only, re- you know, could not only solve the problem of these people needing somewhere to live, but could also help grow Australia in a in a positive way. Yes, absolutely. Um, I actually did a bit of work on that a few years ago, um, and I worked out that if if the uh, record arrival rate of refugees, if they were treated properly and if they were um, offered to rural communities, um, even if only one town in ten said, yes, we are happy to have people, even then you would only have their populations increasing by about 1%. Right. Uh, it would be really, really easy. And most of the country towns that I've been to in, in relation to this issue say we would be thrilled to have some more refugees because they can immediately see that all those shops down the main street that are closed would be able to reopen. Um Everyone understands, they get it, they get it that increased population is good for the local economy. And, um, you know, we could, wow, if instead of spending more than half a million a year locking people up offshore, if some of that money was available to them as community support um, on the footing that they go to a country town, that would be brilliant for right. the economy of... Well, the country yeah, town. yeah. Because that family goes to that country town with this yeah. you know, money. They, they rent their house in the local thing. They buy yeah. all this stuff there. Yeah. The kids toll and even he gets the integrated. Kids, the kids go to the local school right. and that's when the family decides they're going to stay there. Right. Because the kids and they, embed them. The kids play football with the local kids yeah. and, you know, and suddenly you're, in, you're part of a community. Yeah. 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 It, it could work if only, if only politicians would see that they can change the narrative and reverse i mean they've got a problem because they've got 16 17 years of lying to the public about it and they suddenly have to say oh well you know i can imagine malcolm turnbull saying look we've been telling you for all this time they're illegal they're not (laughs) we've been telling we need to protect our borders well actually we don't these people would be good for us so we want to bring them into australia is that okay and and what are labor going to say look we meant to tell you they were lying we just didn't get around to it how how do we break that circuit? Because that's the problem, isn't it? I don't that know. you, it is one of those things where you almost need Malcolm Turnbull to know on the. Not that I'm saying that he is capable of doing this. Unfortunately, he's been a great disappointment to a lot of people. Where he's publicly stated he believes in some things and then done nothing to actually implement those beliefs while he's been in office. And um, but you know you almost need somebody like that knowing that they're going to lose. You know the day before and just deciding. All right. Here's what you got to know. We've been lying to you for 15 <laughs> years. Yeah. Here's all the evidence of it. Yeah. I'm just going to, like, at least I'm going to, this is going to be my one thing on the way out. Okay. Is just... I think his speechwriters might polish that up a little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it's, inter- it's interesting you say, I mean, he has contradicted himself a lot uh, and he doesn't seem to stand for anything very much. Um, I heard on the news on the way here today that Queen Elizabeth has just made a big speech saying that the next leader of Chogham should be uh, Prince of 
the Prince Charles. Prince Charles, yes, yeah. I just saw that. Uh, and um, and Malcolm Turnbull has embraced that idea. Now there's there's a turnaround for a Republican. I mean, <laughs> the head of the Republican yeah. movement. <laughs> he has said before that he thinks we should wait until Queen Elizabeth dies, and that's the time for a change. Right, but oh, he's just forestalled that one. Uh, okay, so, uh, thank now, you. So- you were asking about yes. philosophy before. I was, and 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 going way way back back to the um, problem of chasing people for robo-debts and all that sort of yes. stuff. Um, I have thought about justice for a long time. And one of the first and most important observations about justice is, I thought, of course, the Melian Dialogue in Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian Wars, which I see you've got a copy of over there, is it? Because, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, you know, it's the Peloponnesian Wars, 400-something B.C., and um, and it's Athens against Sparta. Athens isn't doing too well. And so the Athenians think we need a jumping-off point that's a bit closer to Sparta. And there's the island of Melos, very nicely placed. So they go to Melos and they say, look, uh, we, we need to take you over. There's an easy way and there's a hard way. And they explain what each of those would involve. And, and they say, and of course, we accept, as you will say, that you've never done anything to hurt us and we don't serve it, you'll say it's unjust. But you know as well as we do that justice is only relevant between equals in power. And where power is not equal, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. Now, I've always thought that our system, our democratic system and our legal system, is designed to soften the hard edges of that philosophy. But I'm not sure that it's working all that well. Otherwise, why would we have in a democratic system people at the bottom end of the pile, people who can't afford to repay five bucks a week, why should they be crunched while the financial industry is screwing the country madly, big companies paying no tax at all? You know, it's just it's crazy. The, the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. It's become increasingly so, though, hasn't it? I mean, the, mm. it seems like, at this period of time that, you know, I mean, you, it just the other day again, that, you know, the alarming statistic about how many, you know, how small amount of people control half of the world's wealth, you know, it becomes a smaller mm. and smaller amount of people mm. every time they uh, publish that list and every time you think it must be wrong until you start. Well, see, that doesn't offend me quite so much. L- let's, assume, let's accept that that's the case. Mm-hmm. But the real damage happens if the strength and wealth of those people directly influences the way politics is run in different countries and it's not hard to see that happening yes but that's where the damage starts because that's where you start getting legislation that operates unfairly unjustly against um, individuals who can least manage it and who've got the least power to fight against it Um, and you know i mean have a look look at our legal aid system you know i think legal aid is a really brilliant organisation in this country Um, but the legal aid budget is constantly being trimmed so that nowadays legal aid is only available for people facing very serious criminal charges who do not have the resources to mount an adequate defence and that's because of a high court decision that said well if if you can't get a defence in a serious criminal charge well then the charge should be stayed for the time being. if you've got an ordinary civil debt or you're being sued for a civil debt and you can't afford lawyers, you won't get legal aid. 
there's a few family court matters where you might get legal aid, but it's not guaranteed. Now, if people at the in the sort of bottom 70% of the economy can't afford law, then what does our legal system amount to? You know, it's just not good. We I, Recently, you may remember George Brandis, another of our <clears throat> heroes in Canberra. George Brandis was threatening to wind back uh, the increase to funding to community legal centres, which had been introduced by Labor some while before. And that created a bit of a concern, and in fact it didn't ultimately go ahead. But I did some figures, um, given the number of clients that community legal centres help and the amount of federal money that goes into supporting them before the proposed cuts. It turns out that it amounts to something like, I think, $173 per consultation. Now, that is a genuinely useful thing. People who think they've got a legal problem, although many of them don't, mm -hmm. can go to a community legal centre and get a free, a bit of free advice, and it costs us 173 bucks a consultation. Well, you know, you know, there's not many solicitors firms you could go to which would be as cheap as that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a dazzling thing. And people who can't get help of that sort, people who are faced with the prospect of fighting with both arms behind their back because they can't afford lawyers and they're against a very well-resourced opponent, um, those people go away feeling that the justice system doesn't work. And if you've got enough people in the community who feel that they have suffered from injustice, you've got an unstable society. And we, are, we should be better than that. Uh, we should finish up soon, but I've got a couple more questions that I uh, like to ask. One, one that just always comes up towards the end because it feels like the appropriate place for it is death. What, what do you think about death? Is, it, is death a thing that you think about a lot? Do you have a belief system around you know, your death and what you think hap happens? You know, you've had to see or at least talk about and witness you know, the death of you know, people that you've fought for and concerned, you know, been concerned about. Like, how much of a role does death play in your thinking? Um, practically zero. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know it's going to happen, and I figure that after it happens, <laughs> that's the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, it's a yeah. it's a pretty simple way to it's like lights look out, at the know. world. So, yeah. I guess the the more interesting extension question of that is how does that belief system inform the way that you live your life? Um, not at all. Not at all. No. What what does inform the way I lead the rest of my life, especially in relation to some of the issues that I've been involved in is with my last breath before the lights go out, I'd prefer to say I'm glad I tried rather than I wish I'd done something. Um, and because the other, the other big issue that has occupied me is indigenous rights. Yeah. Um, so let's, well, so which, let's have a little moment to talk about that. If you, if you're happy to, yeah. you've got the time because this is something that, you know, I wish, I mean that I am again is something that I feel like, this country will never, you know, recognise the great capacity mm. that it has for being a country until we not only make peace with, but embrace and celebrate the fact that we also have the world's mm. longest existing, you know, people living yeah. and culture and art and all these things. By a big margin. By yeah. a mile. Yes. Like our biggest selling point. The thing that we could be saying, look, look what else we've got. You know, mm. and we instead we cover it in shame and lies and yep. mistruths and the mistreatment of people for hundreds of years now. So talk to me about well, why. Okay, well, just first of all, me. first of all, the the one thing that really really cheeses me off 
whenever I go to public meetings, which is fairly often, is someone will start off by saying, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet and their um, leaders past and present and emerging. Well, that irritates me because it's only telling the part of the story that suits us, makes us feel better. Right. Um, I, I did a thing in Bunbury in Western Australia a couple of years ago and the woman who was running the event said, well, there's going to be the acknowledgement and then this and then this, you speak and then questions and blah, blah, blah. So I said, well, look, <clears throat> if you're going to acknowledge the traditional owners, what about acknowledging the traditional owners of the land we meet on and acknowledging that our ancestors took it from them and we don't plan to give it back and we caused great harm by doing it? And then we added to the harm by taking their children from them and we've got no coherent ideas about how to repair the damage we did. Well, to her credit, she did it. Mm. And Bunbury applauded. 600 people in an auditorium in Bunbury applauded when she did that. And I think it's because they all recognised that that actually was the a balanced view of the thing. Right, because um, I, I understand what you're saying as well. Because it, it's always been one of those things where I've toyed a few times with the idea that it's something that I... Uh, they have a recording at the Melbourne Comedy Festival that has an acknowledgement and uh, you and it's always one of those things where you're going, I'm glad they're doing something. Yeah. Like I'm glad that yeah. they're, you know, yeah. recognising the fact yeah. that it, it was this. Yeah. But at the same time, I can't help but always think of the exact same thing that you thought of, which mm. is it's well, all well and good for us to go, we acknowledge this land used to belong to someone else. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if we leave out all the bit about why it doesn't still belong to them, <laughs> yeah, that yep, seems to be... We've got it, yippee. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. That well, feels like it's rubbing it in their faces I, a little bit. I, had never, I know that's not the point. I had but. never really thought about it, but in, I think it was 2005, I was asked by the Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement in Adelaide to take over as senior counsel in a case that had been brought for a bloke called Bruce Trevorrow. And um, the case had originally started off with Robin Layton as the silk. She was appointed to the Supreme Court, handed it on to Sid Tilmouth, who got appointed to the District Court, and so then I get asked if I'll step in. And I was, I mean, really innocent. I knew nothing about all of that history. But Bruce, as it turns out, was the perfect client. Bruce had been born at One Mile Camp Meningi in November 56. Um which was important for me because I remember November 1956. I was a little kid in short pants at school. Anyway, so Meningi is a small town on the Coorong in South Australia. A one-mile camp was a camp of humpies uh, a mile outside Meningi because in November 1956, it was illegal for Aborigines to live nearer than one mile to a place of white settlement unless they had a permit. Okay? Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? <laughs> um Anyway, so Bruce is um, born in One Mile Camp. His uh, parents were pretty good people, by all accounts. And on Christmas Day of 1957, when Bruce was 13 months old, he got very sick. He was taken up to the Adelaide Children's Hospital about an hour's drive away. He was diagnosed as having gastroenteritis. There was a wave of that going through South Australia at the time. And he was treated appropriately, and the hospital records show that he was better after a week. And a week after that, he was given away to a white family who lived in suburban Adelaide. Um, Now, the white family, as it happens, had a daughter who was 16 at the time. And that daughter 
came along as an elderly woman and gave evidence in Bruce's case. And she said she remembered it very well because her mother had always wanted a second daughter. And they saw an ad in the paper offering Aboriginal babies. So they went to the children's hospital. They saw a lineup of little Aboriginal kids. They saw a cute curly-headed girl at the end of the line. They said, we'll take her. She's handed over to them. They get her home, change her nappy. Turns out she's a boy. It was Bruce. (laughs) That's how careless it was. And um, the department actively prevented Bruce from being reunited with his family. Uh, when his mother, down at One Mile Camp Meningi, found an envelope and an address and a piece of paper and all that and wrote to the department saying, you know, how's my boy going and when's he coming home? They wrote back saying, he's doing quite well, but the doctors say he's not well enough to come home yet. They'd given him away three months earlier. He didn't see his natural mother until he was 10. Um, and that was all pretty sad. Anyway, Bruce uh, is was and remains the only Aborigine to be found by court to have been unlawfully taken from his parents and to have suffered damage as a result and to be awarded compensation for that damage. Um, Now, that was pretty important. Bruce had two brothers, Tom and George Trevorrow, who weren't taken because the department recognised that their family was pretty good and uh, they grew up and became leaders of the Naranjeri community, which is the Aboriginal group down there. And when we got judgment in Bruce's case in August 2007, and um, that was looking exciting because later that year, Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister for the first time and said that the first business of the new parliament would be an apology to the stolen generations. And he wanted some Aboriginal leaders in the public gallery uh, when he made the apology. So Tom and George Trevorrow got invited... But Bruce didn't. <laughs> the only Aborigine in the, in the country who's been found by court to have been unlawfully taken. And uh, anyway, so we sent him a little reminder and they hurried out an apology and he got there. But he died on the 20th of June 2008, just four months after the apology. Um, a little bit short of his 52nd birthday. Now, the interesting thing that uh, my involvement in that case had was, first of all, I had not realised until then just how close is the bond between Aborigines and the land. You know, it's closer than the parent-child connection. Um, But the other is how damaging it was for people to be removed from their parents. And one of the... I mean, the South Australian government took every imaginable defence, including, A, that Bruce wasn't damaged. Well, you only have to look at him to see he was clearly damaged. And B, if he was damaged, it wasn't because he was removed. And so one of the central issues in the case was the work of John Bowlby. John Bowlby was a social researcher who studied children who'd been evacuated from London during the Blitz uh, and you know been placed in the countryside. And he later reported that if a child is removed from his or her parents or main carers, between the ages of nine months and five years, they will inevitably be damaged. And the only question is, is the damage you inflict greater or less than the damage you're saving them from? Now, um, one of the key findings in the case was that the state of South Australia was aware of Bowlby's work and, and that Bowlby's work accurately predicted what would happen and that there was no cause for removing Bruce from his parents. In other words, they just inflicted harm on him and didn't save him from anything except a decent upbringing. 
so that was pretty important. But it was very interesting. Bruce was a decent sort of guy, but he, was a, he couldn't identify with anyone older than about 18 months. He was a lousy husband and a lousy father. And the damage that he suffered has been passed on to his children, who presumably will pass on a bit of it to their children, and so it goes. We really need to look around and say, well, I mean, most Australians regard Aborigines as hopeless. You know, they're, they're just too much of a nuisance, not worth bothering about. Well, have a look around. Could we be partly responsible? And maybe we need to do something about it and fix it up. Because we've got their land, which we acknowledge. Uh, we're not giving it back, which we agree. And we need to do something very serious to repair the damage that we inflicted on that community. Um, I don't know. I suggested something recently which Jared Henderson got stuck into me about, which is, OK, let's, let's look at all the land of the traditional owners in the major capitals. And let's say, since Aborigines are about, what, 2.8% of the population, mm. let's put a one-off capital tax of 2.8% on the value of all the land that we took and collect all that money together and quarantine it so it can only be used for helping Aboriginal communities. That might be a way of paying things back. I mean, that sounds like a really... like <laughs> No one's ever going to do that, Julian, but that I don't is think such so. a good... <laughs> I mean, I think it is one of those things, though, where we have to do something so much bigger than what we've done. And we have to do it in a way that it is about embracing the future, embracing the past and the mistakes that have been made and mm. righting the wrongs. You know, we, yes, we apologise, but this needs much more than words. This needs yeah. a genuine, massive you know, reparation of some kind yep. with the Indigenous Start people. with all the facts. You've got to start with all the facts. Yeah. Um, and, and you can't deny what happened. Mm. And, it like, it doesn't make you... Yeah, I mean, so talk to me about this because this is always an interesting area. Sorry, I know that we have to finish up. But uh, it, this idea of the argument you would have at a barbecue, I'm being very, very simplistic with this straw man I'm introducing to make this argument, but with somebody saying, well, it wasn't me. I shouldn't have to feel guilty about what happened. So the argument to that being that we are living as beneficiaries of the things that were happening so that we should, we still have a responsibility of some Okay. Uh, um, the argument, it wasn't me, mm. doesn't look all that healthy if you see what the country does on Anzac Day. Because that wasn't us either. Right. You know, that was our great-grandfathers. Uh why did Ab, uh, why did Yasmin Abdul Magid get hounded out of Australia for using a simple expression which is associated with Anzac Day um, if it wasn't us? Yeah, I mean, you make a very good point. You're very good at being a lawyer. Uh, <laughs> you can you can make a compelling argument. I can see why it's worked out well for you. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, hey, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I know it's it must be. Uh, not the easiest thing in the world to constantly have to, you know, talk about these things and advocate for these things and try to make coherent, you know, sensible arguments about things that people will throw a whole bunch of red herrings at to try to distract you from. So I appreciate that well, you've come and the, you've done you, that again. You've reminded me, actually. Um, the, the, the difficulty has been slightly increased because there is a sort of tradition at the bar that barristers don't speak publicly about things. Um, 
And I was deeply conscious of that. And I'm actually a very conservative person, so I kind of support these traditional ideas. And and uh, I always felt a bit uncomfortable and suffered the consequences at work as people who I thought were friends would avoid me because I'm, you know, being public in my criticism of the government. And uh, Kate and I were at a fancy social thing in about 2003 or so, and the wife of a very senior, highly respected colleague sidled up to me and said, oh, do you think it appropriate that a member of the bar should speak publicly about these matters? And that really stung because part of me agreed with her. And I said, well, do you think it appropriate that you should know about these matters and remain silent? And it was good because it resolved the problem that had been worrying me. You've got to, you know, if you know something is wrong, I think it's useful to do what you can to fix it up. Uh, thank you very much for doing the podcast today. I really appreciate it. If people want practical ways that they can help after listening to this, um, is there particular organisations or whatever that you you think are doing good work or ways that they can support in a positive way? Well, the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre is terrific. It's a really well-run organisation. It was founded just shortly before the Tampa episode. Um, uh, most of the churches have got you know community support groups I mean, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not advocating that we should concentrate solely on trying to help what is being done to refugees. There are lots and lots of people in our community who suffer unfairly, and all of them need help. Now, if your thing is helping out in the local community outreach group at the cricket club, do that. Do something for other people. That's the key. Thank you, mate.